0: Good morning. All right, I say he is risen. You say he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen, he is risen. he is risen. He is risen. He is risen Amen. All right, so happy Resurrection Day and welcome to you this morning. We want to welcome you if you're new. Uh, we are grateful. However, you made your way here today, we're thankful that you've come, that you've uh have come to to worship, to hang out with us uh, this morning. If you've joined us online and you're new, we also want to welcome you, and we are grateful for the opportunity to uh, just to fellowship together and to get to know you. We would love the privilege of knowing you more. If you're looking for a church home, we certainly hope you might find one here, but also recognize there are a number of great churches here in Sheridan, and we just hope that you would find a church that God calls you to, and knit into that church and serve there. So, we are to Resurrection Sunday, and this is the completion of our, our, uh, you know, our, our Easter uh, sermon series here. Um, we, we started with the idea that Jesus came, he came, and we talked about what a profound idea that that was, that the God of the universe came seeking after a relationship with us that Jesus came and that he was born uh, to a a virgin birth, uh, a supernatural birth, that he was 100% God and that he was 100% man. That he came on purpose to pursue a relationship with us to pay the penalty for sin so that he might substitute his life, his righteous life for ours and pay the penalty for sin. And we talked about how he, in the process of his ministry, that he loved that he walked among us, that he he reached out, that he touched those who were considered untouchable, that he went to the margins of society, that he reached out to the outcasts, that he loved so well in the world around him and that he modeled that love for us, for his people, and has told us to go and to do the same thing. We looked at the idea that he prayed, and then in John chapter 17, we had this glimpse of this prayer and this picture of the Trinity and how we've been pulled into that relationship as believers. We, we saw this intimate exchange between the Father and the Son and a prayer for the disciples and then a prayer for all of those who would come, who would uh, be uh, his church Eventually we saw that, that glory has been shared with the church and that word, his word has been shared with the church and work has been given to the church and that it has all been crowned with love, with the love of God. Pastor Mike last week talked about the idea that he died and, and what does the cross mean and the implications of the cross and, and that, that Jesus um, went willingly to the cross on our behalf, again, so that He might purchase us. And today we wanna to talk about the concept and the idea that He rose. And like Ben was talking about, uh, Corinthians 15 tells us that, that if, if the resurrection isn't true, that Christians are to be pitied more so than any people out there. That the reality of it is, is that the, the resurrection is the completion of the gospel message. It is the foundation of our faith. And all of the things that preceded it without the resurrection would have absolutely no bearing or no meaning to us whatsoever. We wouldn't have no reason to meet here today. It is the gospel, it's the idea that we fell and that God came to redeem us. That, that Jesus shows himself through the gospels and through his life and his resurrection to be the one, the awaited Messiah, the one who would come, who would be the savior of the world. It is the beginning of God's Redemptive work of all of his creation that one day he will bring to a total and complete uh, place. Uh, he He will redeem all of creation, even the earth, one day in the final days. It's his faithfulness and his commitment to restore his people and his church and his world that he's created. Resurrection is the vindication of the righteous life of Jesus. What it means is this, it means that Jesus wrote this check for a debt that we had that we could never pay, and this check was too great for us to even ever wrote, and the resurrection is proof that the check cleared the bank, that the transaction is now a done deal, that it is sealed, it is over with, and we can rest in that place. If eternity had a sinner, the cross and the resurrection would be it. It is the resurrection that turned the world completely upside down. It changed our calendar. It changed everything about the world that we live in and it continues to change the world that we live in even today. Without it, Christianity would have faded into obscurity. Resurrection is the foundation of our faith. It is the foundation absolutely of Christianity. So let's look into it a little bit here. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is a chapter that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And, and this chapter is all about resurrection. This this first little bit here is a foundational creed that was handed down to Paul that Paul handed to the church at Corinth. So why is that important? It's important because what we want to come to understand, not that our faith is one that is totally based on, on the idea of historical Verification, but I want to tell you that there's more out there than what we sometimes believe. That there is a reality to our faith, that our faith isn't just a completely blind faith, that we have to understand that God intersected into history, and that we're talking about real history. We're talking about a real life. And that most, almost all reasonable historians, whether they're Christians or non Christians, will uh, not try to disavow the idea that Jesus lived. They will tell you that Jesus was a live man who walked on the earth about over 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Uh, The other thing that they will tell you is that he died that there's a reality to this life and to this death of Jesus. And so what we want to look at is we want to look at is what did the early church believe? What did early church believers believe? What foundationally was the church based on? And this gives us a really good glimpse and also pulls us really close into the event itself of the resurrection. So it says this, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I handed down to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." So this is a foundational creed again it's given to Paul and Paul gave it to the church at Corinth. Now the letter 1 Corinthians is probably dates around somewhere around 55 AD and this church at Corinth was planted somewhere around 49 to 50 AD. So Paul is saying that this creed was pre-existing this church and its church plant. And, and so, uh, so there's some debate among scholars as to where did he get this? Where did this creed come from? Where did this, this creed is written in a Greek poetic form that is meant to be memorized. Most of the people in Jesus's day were illiterate. And so this is meant to be something to be memorized and to be committed to uh, your thought. And so, so Paul, Uh, Where did he get this? Some people say, well, Jesus gave it to him on the Damascus road. um, And there's some other thoughts, but the one that I'm going to go with, and one I think is really a reasonable one, is this in Galatians chapter 1, 18 and 19. It says, then three years later, this is Paul talking, and it's talking about him after his resurrection or his uh, his meeting the resurrected Jesus on the road to, to Damascus and his conversion. He says, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas or Peter, and I stayed with him for 15 days, but I did not see another one of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, if you look in the creed, there are two identities. There are two people named individually. It is Cephas or Peter, and also James are noted individually within that. I think it's not unreasonable to say that probably this was handed on to Paul from Peter and from James as they talked about this idea of the formation of the early church and what kind of creed, what doctrine that the early church is formed on. And this is very heavily formed on the idea of resurrection. And so Paul has been given this, and this probably took place in about 37 AD. So what does that mean? That means that this takes us very close to the events of the actual resurrection. It takes us so close to that we have now eyewitness people who could refute these kinds of things, who could break down these different arguments. And so how can we know and what kind of things can we look to today? And again, I don't think that an intellectual approach to faith is ever gonna work because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith itself is hope in the unseen but there are some interesting things, and one of those things that we have to look at is the empty tomb. Now, it doesn't matter where people come from. All of the scholars, historical scholars, will pretty much agree at this point that there is an empty tomb that has to be dealt with. Now, they deal with it or they try to deal with it in certain ways. They say, well, maybe the disciples stole the body, right? Maybe they came and they, they stole the body, and then they just claimed that he was resurrected and they started this new deal. Now let's remember, there is no money to be made and there is no popularity to be gained by anything like this. This whole movement of Christianity is one that is trying to be subverted, it's trying to be taken out. And, And so these guys have no advantage really to do this. But this empty tomb demands an answer, what has happened here? Because something has happened. And it's got a buzz going around the whole world at this point, or the whole known world for them at this time. And so there are different thoughts on that. One is that maybe the women just went to the wrong tomb. Maybe they just picked the wrong one, and they said, oh, geez, it was empty, and, and it started from there. Or maybe he just swooned on the cross. He just passed out, and then he came to later on, and then he just walked on out of there. And everybody said, wow, look at that. He's resurrected. He's resurrected. The problem with each one of those is that, is, is that there's just too many holes in those things. The Romans were experts at, at, at killing people. They, 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 they knew how to do their job and they did it very well. Um, the women and the, and the, I mean, any of these things just break down at a certain point. And, and so we have this empty tomb and this empty tomb has not really been dealt with or explained away in any reasonable fashion to this very day. As a matter of fact, the most reasonable answer to this is that exactly what we say happened, happened. Is that Jesus is who he says he is, that he, that he was risen from the dead, that he borrowed that tomb for a few days because he didn't really need it, and he walked away from it. Another thing that's an interesting thing is the honesty of the reporting. For one thing, it's uh, all four of the gospel accounts say that it was women who were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Now, we don't think much about that, but what you have to understand about Jesus and his ministry, and especially his ministry to women, is that Jesus gave honor and and dignity to women in a way that was so radical, we, we can't even hardly conceptualize it. It was so different. Everywhere that Christianity has prospered, so have women. But in that day, you see, women weren't considered to be credible witnesses. So if you were gonna write an account of what had happened The only way that you would say that women were the first ones and the original witnesses to this is if it really was that. It wasn't a good thing, it wasn't a good position to take, but the honesty of the reporting is another interesting thing that we look at here. Another thing is that that Peter, the disciples had an encounter that changed their lives. We've got 11 guys left and 11 of these guys 10 of them give up their lives for the gospel. They went from being afraid and hiding, scared that they were gonna be the next ones that the Romans came in and pulled out into the streets and either killed right there or crucified. And they went from that to being spirit-filled evangelizers of the entire world, going out, proclaiming the gospel. Each one of them given the opportunity before their death to recant their faith and to come out and just say, no, here's what really happened. Now I would hold that you couldn't get 11 people together and have them start dying over something that they knew wasn't true and have them all hold in there. It wouldn't happen. But 10 of them take it to their death and John found himself exiled onto Patmos, a Greek island that was a prison and imprisoned there these guys were changed. Something happened to them. Something changed the world 2,000 years ago. Peter, a denier, probably a guy who believed that the Romans were going to be subverted by, by Jesus beginning some big revolt against them, that they would be pushed out of Jerusalem and out of Israel, and that Jesus was going to lead them in that. And when that didn't happen, he found himself tail spinning denying the reality of, the, of of Jesus and who he was, denying him before uh, even a little girl. Um, so something happened that changed Peter from being a denier into being a spirit-filled preacher who preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 came into the church. It took James, who was an unbelieving brother, who thought his brother was crazy, and changed him and brought him into a place of being one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And it took a guy named Saul, who was going out trying to eradicate the church, trying to squash it, trying to get it gone. He was killing Christians, he was imprisoning Christians, he was closing churches down. Something happened to him, he had an encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and it left him so changed that he went from being a church eradicator to a church planter, to a missionary, to one who wrote a huge percentage of the New Testament. Something changed his life. The other thing is that Christianity has grown throughout the world and it continues to grow even today. Places like China and Iran have the fastest growing church in the world right now. People are coming to Christ left and right in these places. Christianity continues to thrive and to spread all throughout the world. And the more that the world tries to squash it and obliterate it and shut it down and shut it up, it squirts out even more and it grows all the more. And the other thing is that the resurrection is still changing lives. There are testimonies in this place of lives that have been changed, that have been affected by, by this message, by this resurrection power that God has come and that he has changed their lives. 20 years ago, I met Jesus, much to my surprise and all of my friends, I became a Christian. I still don't know how Jesus snuck up on me and got that done, but he did. And he changed my life and he radically changed my life. And I'm not the same man by any means that I was prior to come and to know Jesus. There are lives in here that have that same testimony who because of the power of Jesus and because of the power of the resurrection and who he is, they've come to know him. So what does it mean? What does it mean if if this is true? What if the resurrection is something that true? What is the implications of that? Well, the implications of that is that Jesus is who he says he is that he's the creator of all things, that he's not just the creator, but the sustainer. He's the one who holds all power and holds the entire creation in order at all times. It means that he's the one who fashioned you, who made you, who knew you before he created you, who knows the number of your days. It means that that he's the one who gave you individual fingerprints like nobody else. He gave you a genome that's never existed on earth, never will again. He's given you unique features that identify you, and he knows who you are. Acts 2.24 says this. It says, But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Did he die? Yes. Could he stay dead? No. Hebrews 7.16 Who has become a priest, this is Jesus, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Jesus is the eternal God of all history, and he is the one who was risen from the dead, who came, who lived as a man to to pay the penalty for sin. And what does that mean to us? Well, it really depends on where you sit with that. It depends on where you sit with who Jesus is and what the resurrection is all about. You see, if you're a believer, then you understand this. You understand that you too will one day be resurrected to new life, that you'll spend eternity with God You'll understand that Jesus identified with our humanity, that he entered into our suffering, that he paid the penalty for sin, and that he now leads his people out of death and into eternal life. You'll understand that God brings strength out of weakness. This is God's economy. This is how God works. What would appear to be total um, defeat and, 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 and a done deal in the death of Jesus becomes the victorious place in which life, eternal life for us begins. See, God's economy is upside down and backwards. It says things like this, it says like, if you wanna be the first, then you gotta go to the end of the line, right? If you wanna be the greatest, then you have to become the least. If you want to um, if you receive, you have to start giving. If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. If you want to live, you must die. This is the economy of God. And what does that mean? It means that he's bringing strength out of our weakness. It means that he'll waste nothing. That every struggle that we have, every sickness that we have, every disease that we've had, everybody that we've lost, everything that we have experienced in this life, if you know Jesus, and what it means is that he will waste none of it that he has made a promise, that he said this, that he will work all things for the good, for those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. God will waste nothing. He'll bring strength out of our weakness. One day, one day we'll understand the things that we just don't get now. One day where today we're looking at the back of the tapestry and it's nothing but a mess of threads. It's all just, he's gonna turn that around. And he's gonna show us the beauty of the tapestry that he wove with the lives right here. He's gonna show us how, how those, those threads that seem to make no sense on the back side turned into something beautiful on the front side. And he's gonna rework this thing. It's the hope of the new life. It quells our deepest fear, which is death. We see and believe that if Jesus was resurrected, and we also will be. It means this. It means that sickness, it means that life circumstance, it means that missed opportunities, it means that the brokenness of this world and death do not get the last word Jesus does. Amen? Amen. Let's look at this. Verse chapter 15 it goes on to say this. It says, Now I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality." But when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the meantime, what does this mean? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What does that mean? It means that the life that you're living now in the in-between has meaning. It has purpose. God has work for you to do. Everything that we do has the potential to have eternal value. Everything that we do and how we live our life, not just Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day of the week, every moment of our life, it has the potential to affect eternity. So it says to to take heart, to know that one day God is gonna restore every broken thing in this world and his resurrection is proof of that. And that not only that, but that what we're doing and how we're living and the work that you're doing today is significant. Work the right job, do the right thing. Doesn't matter what we do for work, but in the work that we find ourselves working in, we can do eternal things. It's not about being a pastor, it's not about being on staff at some church, it's about living the life of Christ, about recognizing that that there's eternal significance to the things of this world, that one day God is gonna justly and rightly judge the world, and it's gonna be wrapped up and it's gonna be over with, and we have the opportunity today to join him in redeeming this world. He's chosen to work the redemption of this world or part of that process out through his church, through his people. He's given us great meaning. In the meantime, we're not just waiting it out, in some kind of meaningless state. What you do today and how you live is incredibly significant. But what if you're here today and you're not a believer? Well, A, I'd I wanna tell you that, that you're welcome here and we're grateful that you're here. But, but maybe you're just, you just don't believe.
1: And I get that.
0: I wanna tell you, I can relate to that because I came from a space of that too. I used to think Christians were the dumbest people that I knew, all honesty, no offense, sorry. I changed. <laughs> but I did. So I get it. So if you're here and you're here in a place of unbelief, that's okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful you're here. I hope you come back. Love to have you come back. But I have a question for you. Who will rescue you from death? Who will rescue you from death? Who will snatch you from the jaws of death when death comes for you? And it will. It will come for each and every one of us. And the resurrection of Jesus is the hope that God will snatch us out of that, that our lives will be held in his righteous right hand and none can take it out, right? But I wanna tell you, if you're here and you're here in a place of unbelief, that I wanna tell you that there's a God who loves you, There's a God who has a plan for you. There's a God who knows you. There's a God who created you and who desires to walk in harmony and unison with you. And he's done on his end everything that it takes to make that possible. His love uh, motivated him to put on this flesh, to enter into time, space, and history, to live a perfect life, to be tempted in every way yet without sin, Why? So that he could substitute that life for your life. So that he could exchange it. Because the reality of our lives are, is that we fall short. What the Bible says about good people is that there aren't any. That we may see ourselves as good. We may view ourselves as that. That might be the perception that we have of of who we are that we've done all of these other good things and we're gonna use those things to justify and say, well, look, I'm really a good person because I've done all these good things. I wanna just tell you that the good things that you've done are what's at issue between you and God. It's the skeletons that are in your closet It's the things that you've done that we don't want to admit. It's the places we've gone. It's the things that we've done that we wouldn't even talk about, that we'll just try to place in some dark place and try to pretend like it didn't happen. But I want to tell you that God already knows those things. And he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for that so that he could give his life, his righteous life, in exchange for yours. So that he might proclaim you to be holy, blameless and beyond reproach so that you could stand in the presence for eternity with a holy and righteous God. And you could do it by his justice. You see, the cross and the resurrection are the, again this place where love and justice collide and life is victorious, right? The new life, the resurrected life. So what's in the way then of it is just you It's just really the reality of trying to figure out who who I really am. See, for me, I used to have this perception of who I was, and I was a pretty decent guy, pretty good guy. Most people would have agreed with you on that, not everybody, but a lot of people would have. (laughs) They just said, yeah, try, he's a nice guy. But when I looked into my past, I would look and, the, and there was this kind of this shadow figure who was doing things in my life and it was hurt, hurt some different people and did some things that just weren't okay and things that I'm not proud of at all. And I was looking I'm like, who is that guy? And then I, it's me. That's me. I did those things. I'm the common denominator in some of this stuff some of these struggles in my life and and some of the brokenness and some of the brokenness that I caused. And I came to realize that I wasn't as good a guy as I thought I was. That I had a need and that need was outside of me because like I said, I was the common denominator in a lot of my struggles. And this is what God is calling you to. He's, He's just saying, will you get real? Will you enter into a place where healing is even possible? Will you enter into reality? Will you look at who you've really been and recognize that you have a need for a savior because the first step is a recognition that you have a need that's outside of you. And so when we, when we do that, when we, when we step into that space, we open up a channel of healing and hope and we recognize and we say, hey, have we come to believe maybe that this Jesus who says he came and that he died for us, maybe that's the real deal. That if he died on the cross, and I have proof through this resurrection that this is the real deal and that he will save me, that I'm not just the one guy who went that much too far, but that he came for me. And then you commit, you, you give your life to him, you make him the Lord of your life. His word, his commands, the things that he's called us to become the lens that we live our lives through. We don't just go to church and go somewhere else and things, you know, however we want, we, 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 we actually experience an inward change. The Bible says that if we do this from the heart, that the Holy Spirit will come and will indwell us, and will begin to change our desires and our will, begin to bring us into agreement with the things of God. So, as we close out today, I want to do one thing. I want to give anybody here who hasn't ever made that step, maybe... The Spirit of God is calling to you right now and saying, that's you. That's where you sit. You, you, you sit in, in a precarious place in your relationship to God. But maybe this morning, God's Spirit has touched you and you have an understanding and a recognition of a need to repent and to turn and to ask Him into your life. I wanna give you a chance to do that just by prayer. And, and, and the prayer, it isn't really about the words. It's about the heart in the words. And if you just tell God in the midst of this prayer, this truly is what I want, then there's only one way you can have salvation and that's when it's given to you as a gift. You can't work for it, you can't earn it, can't help enough old people across the street or be a good enough person. You can't be smart enough to have it. You can't buy it, but guess what? You can have it. By taking the faith that God has given you and investing it into this system, into his son. We all live by faith. You may say, try I'm an atheist, but I'm gonna tell you, you got faith, and you've invested that faith into a belief system, and that belief system is directing your life. God has given us faith, and he's asked us that we put faith in it. So if you'll, just by a willingness of your heart, agree in prayer with this prayer, The Bible says this, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It also says this, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So as I pray this prayer, you can agree with this prayer and you can ask God into your heart and into your life. And if you've done that, and if you're a believer, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to just preach the gospel to yourself all over again. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of what has been done for you and remind yourself that you sit securely under the power of the resurrection right now. Let's pray together. Father, I just, I come before you just admitting my need, my sinfulness, that I am a sinful man, that I've actually done things that I'm so not proud of, And I've been places that I'm not proud of. And I've just recognized that I have sin and I have a need for a savior. And Jesus, thank you that you're that savior that came into this world. That you're God in the flesh who's come to make a way, to make a path where there was no way for me. Thank you. Thank you that you've given your life, that you've shed your blood to purchase me. And God, I just want to commit my life to you. I want to give everything of my being back to you. Help me, Lord, to not be caught up in the temporal things of this world. Help me to live on purpose and with a purpose, knowing that you've created me just as you have, and that you placed me in this time of history, then that you have work for me to do. So Lord, I just want to make you the Lord of my life. I want to live with you forever. I want to experience eternity with you in heaven, and so, Lord, I thank you that you have forgiven me of my sins, that you have restored me, that you have saved me, that you have lavished me with grace and with love, that you've given me your word, that I might live a new direction through it, that I might even understand life for the first time ever, and I thank you for all of these things that you've done, and we pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, amen.